Hello and welcome to the Sustainability Skill Set Podcast, a show where we explore careers in sustainability and the skills you need to succeed. I'm glad you're here. If you are passionate about sustainability and hungry to learn, you're in the right place. I'm your host, Louis DeMasso, a sustainability consultant and young sustainability professional learning right along with you. Today we have Daniel Wolf with us. Daniel is a policy manager at the American Council on Renewable Energy, a nonprofit organization uniting finance, policy, and technology to accelerate the transition to a renewable energy economy. There, he assists with organizing program-related events, conducts legislative and regulatory research, and monitors renewable energy trends. He has a history of working in public policy, holding roles with the American Wind Energy Association, the Consumer Technology Association, the U.S. House of Representatives, and the U.S. Department of Energy. I am excited to share our conversation with you today. Let's get into it. Hey, Danny, thanks for coming on the show. Of course. Thanks for having me. So could you give us just a quick background about your uh, position and the company you work for? Yeah, happy to. So right now I work for the American Council on Renewable Energy, or ACOR as we call it. Um, for those not familiar, that's a 501c3 national nonprofit. Um, we're dedicated to accelerating the transition to a renewable energy economy. Um, I've been there for about three years now. Um, and in my current role, I'm mostly focused on congressional affairs. Uh, so advocating for policies that are going to speed up the renewable energy transition on Capitol Hill. Um, and for the past couple of years, that's largely been focused on clean energy tax policy. And I'm happy to dive into that a little bit more. Um, but some of your listeners probably know that this summer, Congress actually passed the Inflation Reduction Act, which is the first time the U.S. Congress has ever passed comprehensive climate policy. And um, in that bill, fortunately, were long-term extensions of the clean energy tax credits, which have really made utility scale, wind and solar, um, affordable and economic, and, and um, have really sped up their deployment. So since then, we've, we've pivoted into some other areas and uh, tried to address some of the other barriers that have been holding back renewable growth, uh, mainly siting and permitting reform and a lack of interregional transmission, and also some trade policies. Um, and, and thinking about our domestic supply chain and, and how to make sure that we're able to access all the components that we need to build these projects. Um, so that's just what I've been doing in a nutshell. Um, and I'm happy to answer any further questions on that. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. So you are advocating for policies speeding up the renewable energy transition. What kinds of policies are those looking like? Sure. So, yeah, happy to dive down a little bit. So. I mentioned clean energy tax policy. So absent any federal policy like a clean energy standard or a renewable portfolio standard or a price on carbon or, or anything that would really mandate um, the adoption of renewable energy, the, the biggest thing you know, wind and solar had going for it was tax policy. So for the past couple of decades, Congress has put these into law and basically they're subsidies. Uh, for wind and solar. And, you know, fossil fuels have been getting the subsidies for over 100 years and they're permanently on the books. Um, you can look those up and, you know, they're subsidized, subsidized to the tunes of several billion dollars a year. And, and worldwide, it's, 
you know, could be close to the trillions um, in the past decade alone. Um, and so there's the investment tax credit, which has traditionally been used by utility scale solar, and that's a 30 percent um, subsidy for for the big solar farms out west and what everyone thinks of when when they think of solar. And then there's the production tax credit, um, which has been used for utility scale wind. So the big wind farms that, you know, everyone that comes to mind. Um, and in the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, we got 10 years extension, 10 year extensions of those tax credits, which was a huge victory for the sector. You know, we had been fighting tooth and nail every year to get extended for one or two more years. Meanwhile, fossil is subsidized on a on a permanent basis. So now that we've got that, um, we're looking at other barriers right now. The biggest barrier to renewable energy is a lack of interregional transmission. So over time, the paradigm has shifted. If you look back, you know, several decades ago, the biggest games in town were nuclear, hydropower and fossils, so coal or, or and now natural gas. And generally, what you would do is you'd site a coal plant or you'd site a nuclear plant right next to a city. So right where the population center was and the electricity demand was. And it would be a lot easier. You'd build it there, you'd string a short wire to the city, and boom, you had power. Now it's changed a little bit because the best solar and wind resources in the country are located in very remote areas. You know, the middle of the country, the Great Plains area, that's where the best wind is. You know, the south stretching from California, Texas, Florida, that's where the best solar is. And you're building these big, you know, renewable projects, not anywhere near population centers. So the problem becomes, how do you transport that electricity to where it needs to go? And the answer is transmission lines. Um, so these are the big high voltage lines that, you know, go hundreds of miles. It's not the, you know, electrical lines in your neighborhood. And for a variety of regulatory and, and political and economic reasons, it's extremely difficult to build these lines. You know, a single power line can take over a decade to site, permit, and construct. And the problem is we're bumping up against our climate goals. You know, we only have another 20 years to decarbonize our economy, meet the Paris Climate Accord goals, um, avoid the worst of climate change. And if we started building a you know, planning a transmission line tomorrow, it take a decade to build. And so we're running out of time to do this. And what happens is there's been a lot of modeling and reports that suggest um, we're not going to be able to build enough renewables in time to decarbonize if we don't have that requisite infrastructure. So that's what we're thinking about the most at ACOR. How can we incentivize those lines? How can we get them constructed in a timely manner in order to, to maximize the gains from this, this bill that Congress passed? That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, you got to have both the generation and the transmission components of the infrastructure in place, right? Exactly. And that's one of the, the key parts of sustainability is a kind of a location-specific design. And like you said, in the past, you could just generate energy wherever you are, but mm -hmm. transitioning to a more sustainable 
um, energy grid means generating electricity where there's natural sources like wind or solar or something like that, and then trying to get it to where it needs to be consumed. Exactly. Exactly. So how, um, how are you in your role involved in advocating for policy for those transmission lines specifically? Sure. Um, well, a couple of different ways, I guess, you know, thinking about my everyday, you know, job, a lot of it is just sort of monitoring trends, identifying threats and opportunities, you know, talking to Hill staff, setting up meetings, advocating for certain bills that could help here or there. It's kind of a two pronged approach. Um, there's sort of the congressional arena where we're hoping to get some legislation passed that can address some of some of the what we call the three P's, the planning, the paying and the permitting. And I can get into each of those. And we've been advocating for certain pieces of legislation. And then there's also the regulatory route, which I don't really work on. Some of my really smart colleagues at ACOR are more focused on that. But the, the, you know, a very little known agency in D.C. that really has an outsized impact and is actually less than a mile from where I am now is the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. And mm -hmm. they have jurisdiction over transmission planning in the, all the different regions of the country, um, you know, the sale and, and transmittal of electricity. And we're trying to get push them forward to to institute some new rulemakings that would also address um, these barriers. So I guess I can, would it be helpful if I dived into some of the specific difficulties um, around transmission? Yeah, that would be great. Yeah. So one, the first problem straight up is that it's incredibly expensive to build these lines. Um, so we've advocated for a tax credit that would um, make it cheaper to build. And, and we think that's a real solution there. The other problem is that it's very difficult to permit these lines because, as I mentioned, they, they span hundreds of miles. So they cross many different states and connect many different regions. And in the current paradigm, each state has a say in the route that a line will take through their specific area. So, you know, you can have one line that has to get approval from four or five different public utility commissions, and you can have one commission agree, and you can have another commission disagree. And unless all five or all four or however many agree, the line could be not approved. And so that's a major problem. So I mentioned FERC, we're hoping that we can get FERC to step in and this might take some congressional authorization, but giving them more authority to permit the lines um, that are really interstate and, and really critical and, you know, that they step in when there's only one state or maybe two states that don't want to move forward and, and they can move the line forward. We think that's a, that's a helpful solution there. And then the other problem yeah. is related, but also planning, you know, the grid is sort of divided up into different grid operators. They're, they're called regional transmission organizations, and they're responsible for the planning of transmission in a given region. So here in DC, um, it's uh, under PJM, that's the name of the grid operator. Uh, you in Colorado, you don't have one. They don't have one out west with the exception of California. 
Um, there's talks about, and actually Colorado, the state legislator pa- passed a bill um, saying the state should join an RTO in the coming years, but it, it's not there yet. Um, but each RTO has their own process for planning these lines, and that'll work within a region. But then when you have two planning regions, they have different assumptions, they have different models, they have different cost benefit scenarios and matching up um, to adjacent regions and agreeing on where a line should go and who should pay for it, it gets incredibly complicated. And, and that's another problem. Um, so we're, we're hoping that we can get Congress to authorize some fixes that, that make it easier for a transmission developer to recoup the cost in different regions based on the benefits provided. Um, so it becomes less of an argument. So, you know, as I mentioned, it's incredibly complicated. There's a lot going on, but just to understate the fact we need to build these lines yesterday in order to get the clean electricity on the grid tomorrow in order to decarbonize. Definitely. It does sound extremely complicated, but also really important. And so for ACOR's role, are you guys acting as a middleman trying to build consensus between these different regulatory commissions that permit the lines or are you just ad- or are you mostly advocating for policy that would make those kinds of discussions easier at, at the government level? Yeah, you know, personally in my role, I'm more focused on the federal side of things. We do have a lot of regional partners that are in the you know various states and regions advocating for policies on a more local level. But yeah, ACOR really sticks to the federal high level. Gotcha. And you had said that there was two main arenas. There's the congressional arena and then the regulatory route, right? Yes, exactly. And, and the regulatory would be you know, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. And now the Department of Energy has really stepped in and, and the Biden administration, to their credit, has really, really come to the table and, and recognized this lack of transmission as a, a major barrier. And they've started to put a lot of resources towards helping states and regions um, build this infrastructure as well. Can you describe the, the difference kind of between the congressional arena and the regulatory route a little bit? Oh, sure. Well, yeah, congressional arena is Congress. So, you mm-hmm. know, Senate and House, you know, if you think of schoolhouse rock, I'm just a bill, you know, like yep. the legislative process. So, you know, there's committees that have certain jurisdiction. You know, we're mostly focused on energy and commerce and the Senate uh, Energy Committee and a couple of other relevant ones. So, you know, working with individual members and committee staff to draft legislation, move it through the process. You know, both chambers will pass it um, and then hopefully the president would sign it. And and the regulatory side is is more focused on the executive agency. So part of the administration. So they don't create law, but they implement the law that Congress creates. Mm -hmm. So, for example, um, the Inflation Reduction Act and, you know, the year before the bipartisan infrastructure law contained a ton of grant money. So Congress authorized and appropriated that money. um, And then that goes over to the federal agencies, the Department of Energy and all the other ones, Department of Interior, and they implement the law and they execute on it. So they're the ones actually putting out the funding opportunities and distributing the money. Um, So it's a totally different arena. You know, 
the processes are totally different. Um, I don't have as much insight into the regulatory side because I'm more of a congressional person, um, but I am generally familiar with those processes. That's helpful. So it sounds like the outcome of your work in ACORS is really to try to pass bills in those arenas that make it easier to install renewable energy and uh, green our grid systems. Does that sound Absolutely. right? Absolutely. Yeah. That's awesome. Could you describe a little bit about what that means to you and kind of how you got into this work and why it's meaningful to you? Yeah, of course. So, you know, this, this is a story I always tell and it's horribly cliche, but um, I knew that I wanted to do what I do um, from a very young age. Um, I was in the basement with my dad watching Al Gore's Inconvenient Truth and Inconvenient Truth. And I, yes. I believe that came out in in 2005, thereabouts, maybe 2006. And this was on Netflix and it was so long ago that this was before Netflix streamed. Um, you had to order the DVD um, and they'd send it to your house. And then when you were done with it, you had to mail it back. And then your whole family would fight over who got to choose the next movie or they'd get angry if you weren't watching it fast enough. Anyway, I digress. But I remember that. Yes. Yeah. And we're not that old, but um, I remember watching this movie and, you know, Al Gore was giving his, you know, PowerPoint presentation that he said that he had delivered over uh, a thousand times. And I was just flabbergasted. I mean, I saw what I thought was irrefutable um, scientific evidence that the climate was not only changing, but it was changing in a way that was being accelerated by human activity. And if nothing was done to change that progression, um, we were going to run into serious trouble. And I was just absolutely astounded at the time. You know, this was, what, 15, approaching 20 years ago. And the jury, quote unquote, was still out on public. What I mean is public opinion um, wasn't there. You know, if depending on who you asked, a lot of people were climate skeptics. They didn't really believe in it, or even if they believed in it, they weren't really thinking about it. And right then and there, I dedicated my life to doing something about it. And, you know, at first I thought, well, maybe I can spend my time educating people about it. And, and fortunately, we're at a point now where, you know, climate science is much more accepted. In fact, I'd be very hard pressed to find anyone that doesn't acknowledge the climate is changing. Maybe people disagree about why it's changing or the extent to which it's cha changing. But, you know, I think climate change or, or global warming, as it was called back then, is, is really um, on everyone's uh, uh, forefront of their mind. Um, so then it became, well, what do I want to do more specifically to, to, to help decarbonize our, our systems? And, you know, I quickly gravitated towards energy. I, I find the topic really interesting. I studied it in school and I knew that I wanted to do something um, with energy. And it took me a little bit of, you know, figuring out what I wanted to do and how to get there. Um, you know, I studied energy policy. Well, I studied political science in undergrad, and then I went um, energy policy in grad school. And actually, my first job out of college really didn't have very much to do with energy at all. I, 
I ended up at a lobbying firm uh, in D.C., and it was focused on water policy. So, um, you know, things like flood control, environmental restoration, desalination, dredging of canals, you know, anything with water on it, you name it. And that was really interesting. And there is an energy water nexus, but um, it wasn't really what I wanted to be doing. But at the same time, I gained quite a few skills you know, it was a lobbying firm. I learned the ins and outs of the legislative process, how committees work, how bills are drafted and introduced and marked up and voted on, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, I had had a, a very brief congressional internship when I was in college, but this was really a crash course in the legislative process. So I was there for a couple of years, decided I really wanted to make a jump to energy. I went over to the American Wind Energy Association, which is a, a trade association that doesn't exist anymore. It, it was dedicated to wind energy. Since I left there, it's been rebranded to be pan-renewable. It's now called American Clean Power. Uh, you know, It's a trade association that represents all tech, clean technologies. But at the time, it was squarely focused on wind. And um, I went over there and I kind of stepped back from the policy um, I was doing more education, um, more regional policy, honestly, and kind of looking at wholesale electricity market reforms. And that's when I really started to learn about transmission. And I really liked that a lot. Um, I was there for about a year and, um, you know, I actually then made the jump to the American Council on Renewable Energy. Um, where I am now. And then I kind of married the two. I started doing policy for energy. So I ended up exactly where I wanted in the sweet spot. It just took a little bit of jumping around. So that's how I got to where I am today. And I'm, I'm very happy with what I'm doing. I feel like I'm making a real tangible difference. And, you know, I, I can't understate, and I'm going to repeat it several times throughout this recording, but the Inflation Reduction Act that was passed last August really is monumental. It really is a game changer. It finally puts the United States within striking distance of its climate goals. Um, and I'm really proud to have played probably a very small, but still a part in, in getting that enacted. Surely. Yeah. And the um, ability to really link that impact that you're having through the policy work you're doing to the passion that you had for addressing the climate, um, the climate challenges is clear. And it's one of the major benefits of the job, I assume. Yeah, absolutely. I feel good every day about what I'm doing, which a lot of people unfortunately can't say. So I'm, I'm yeah. blessed. If somebody else is feeling the same way about getting into the, the type of work you do, um, you mentioned a little bit about the skills that you developed <laughs> when you first got into your career, but how would, um, how would somebody typically get into policy work? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, for someone that's maybe still in school or, or even no longer in school, you know, I can't stress the importance enough of having a wide variety of internships because that's really what employers are looking for. They're, they're looking for you to have that foundational knowledge, not only in what policy is and you know, the different trends and debates, but really how it's affected. And so I would really, for someone who wants to do something like I'm doing, I would definitely recommend um, working for Congress a little bit. If you're not in the DC area, 
maybe a state legislature, maybe on a campaign, just cutting your teeth on the, the legislative process a little bit. Um, I would also recommend, like I said, the regulatory side of things. I also had a, a stint at the Department of Energy when I was in school. I found that really valuable. Um, you know, if you're interested in a particular type of policy, working for an agency can be really helpful and not just necessarily a federal agency, but maybe a, a state or local agency as well. Um, and then I would just say, always be ready to learn. Um, always do your research, you know, keep up with the, the quote unquote trade press, you know, the news articles, um, just be aware of the emerging topics and the debates that are that are happening in your space so you can, you're able to talk about them intelligently. And that's also what an employer is looking for. Definitely. So it sounds like the first step would really be to get that experience with the legislative process in general. So it doesn't have to be niched down or focused on anything in particular. It might not even be the final topic that you're interested in focusing on, right? Like you might not be um, working on renewable energy policy right off the bat, but just getting that legislative experience under your belt is key. And yeah, then finding that niche over time and getting into the topic that you want to work on. Yeah, absolutely. And, and as I mentioned, I, I started off in water policy, which is totally different from what I'm doing now. But I was able to transfer some of those skills or really all of those skills over to a new topic. So if you understand the legislative process, it really doesn't matter what the topic is. It's applicable to, to everything else, at least in a, a congressional lens. That's incredible. That's great. So what past experience or skills would you say really did lead to you being hired with ACOR? Um, well, I think that probably it was my experience at the lobbying firm and, and understanding how the bills are, are introduced and drafted and, and, and debated and, and passed and whatnot. And I think that um, just understanding of the legislative process and and being familiar with how Congress operates, um, you know, I say Congress, but it's actually two very different chambers. Uh, the Senate is a totally different animal than the House. Um, each committee kind of has its own flavor and all the individual members, senators and representatives all have their key issues. So knowing who's a champion on this particular issue or knowing who's opposed to that you know, knowing what sort of legislation is just a messaging bill um, and has no chance of getting passed or what really, you know, has a, a route to passage, you know, knowing the administration's opinion on something and whether the president would sign it or veto it. All these are kind of skills that you can build up over time and just having the institutional knowledge, you know, knowing which offices to talk to, knowing which committee it has jurisdiction. Um, just being able to sort of navigate the the halls of Congress, either in person or virtually, are, are all skills that anyone can learn, but it just takes a little time. Are those skills that um, are applicable across time and across different people who are in power? Yeah. Or is I it is so. it really is it really specific to different um, different departments and different presidents and things like that? No, no. I mean, I think obviously new administrations will come in with new priorities and, you know, Congress, control of Congress or the respective chambers will will flip uh, between Democrat and Republican. 
but really the process itself remains the same. So what is achievable in a given Congress or administration may change, but the way it's done is largely the same. That's great. So understanding that process is, is key. What other skills are involved with the actual day-to-day work that you're doing? Is it communication and networking skills, or is it um, research, data, or anything like that, or, or other skills? Yeah, I'm not really um, that involved in like data analytics or modeling. Um, you know, I not too much experience with communication either. I would just say, you know, the, the number one trait that I look for when maybe I'm hiring an intern or someone else um, is really the ability to learn quickly and, and pick up a new topic. And, you know, there's certain issues that remain the same uh, over time, but a lot of times you're presented with something that's brand new out of left field and could have a real impact on the sector. So just being able to quickly pick up a new topic um, get to the bottom of it and, and assess, you know, the opportunities and threats around it, I think is a transferable skill that every employer is going to look for. And I'll, I'll give you an example. So, you know, earlier uh, or last year, rather, um, the Department of Commerce, which I've had no experience with at all, um, initiated a an inquiry into solar panels that were being imported from overseas. So, during the Obama administration, uh, they put tariffs on solar panels that were coming from China. And this was an effort to help domestic manufacturers of solar panels um, compete because the, the line at the time was that um, Chinese manu- the Chinese um, Communist Party um, was uh, dumping, i.e. they were subsidizing their panels and then putting them into the American market. And it was... Uh, you know, undercutting everything, and it was a, a big mess. So the Obama administration put tariffs on on those panels. So fast forward to last year, the Commerce Department um, initiated an investigation at the behest of a, a, a certain um, small domestic manufacturer and basically said that um, Chinese panels were circumventing the tariffs Um, by being shipped to other Southeast Asian countries where they put a little finishing touch on it and then ship them to America. And that's considered circumvention of tariffs. And so that completely upended the industry, um, all the panels. And I should mention that right now, the vast majority of solar panels are imported in the U.S. We really don't have a domestic industry for solar panels. We're a little better with um, components for for wind farms, but the vast majority of panels are imported. And everyone recognizes that's a problem and there's some real efforts to stand up a domestic industry, but it's not quite there yet. So we're really dependent on foreign imports. And as I said, it totally froze the market. People stopped importing the panels. They were held up at the ports. Uh, And it really depressed the projections for for solar deployment. And this is all to say that I had to get very, very smart on trade policy, on Department of Commerce investigations, you know, how the the International Trade Administration works, all of these things, which I previously had no experience with, I just had to learn very quickly. 
And, you know, myself and my colleagues at Acor, we quickly became experts on this because it was so impactful to the industry and it was such a dire predicament. But that ability to immediately identify threats and, and identify solutions and, and come together, and that's policy. That, that's being reactive. That's being proactive. Um, that's really defending your sector from from emerging threats. And in the end, we were able to put together a coalition, ACOR, and a lot of other organizations. And we, you know, reached out to the White House, and you know, we reached out to some congressional champions. And we actually were instrumental in getting the Biden administration um, to introduce a two-year moratorium on tariffs. Mm-hmm. So a little bit of a band-aid to the problem, but it, it alleviated the immediate concern. And so that was also a victory for the sector. And it, it spoke to, to people being able to come together, react quickly and propose a solution uh, that can work for everyone. It does sound like a lot to get caught up on quickly and in crunch time. What are some of the resources that you use to do that? Is it uh, internal resource that ACOR maintains or are you, um, have you developed the skill of just researching online to determine these kinds of things? Yeah, so I, I've cultivated sort of a, a set of resources um, over time. So I actually start every morning by reading trade press. So there's there's certain publications um, that are really geared towards energy and renewable energy in general. And I get you know morning briefs and newsletters. And I, I actually start every day reading those to, to catch me up on the latest. And some of them are more geared towards really wonky regulatory issues that are happening on the the regional level. There's a publication called RTO Insider. It's very exciting. Um, There's other news orgs that are focused more towards renewable energy in general, E&E News, Utility Dive, things like that. And apologies, there's a siren going by. Um, And then there's more that are focused on the nuances of, of Congressional activity. So Politico is one that I uh, read a lot. Um, And I'm also an avid Twitter user. There's a lot of things, uh, particularly in the energy sector, that you can only read about on Twitter and you get it first. Uh, And and there's some great congressional reporters out there. So there's some energy reporters out there. So, you know, a couple of times a day, I'm just scrolling through Twitter. It looks like I'm messing around, but no, I'm, I'm gaining uh, intel and, and, and reading about things that are going on. So, you know, just, just constantly having my antenna up and, and seeking out different publications and, you know, there's certain think tanks and NGOs that are putting out reports and I'm on certain email lists. So I get notifications of when they put out a new work product or anything like that. And it takes a while to cultivate that those sources. Um, but at a certain point, you're you're it's almost like you're getting a constant barrage and then it becomes a, like you're getting too much and you need to filter out what's actually important. How do you manage and filter all that information? Do you have any particular... Uh, I don't know. It, it, I, I can't tell you how I do it. I, I've become a, a very adept at power skimming, but you know, I, it, with enough practice, you can read you know ten articles in, in five minutes and decide whether it's news or it's fluff or anything. It, it just comes with practice. That's really interesting. Yeah, one of the things, one of the themes that has come up for sustainability professionals in general is that it's um, it's an important aspect and character trait to be curious and to be quick to learn 
and to always be keeping Absolutely. up with trends because everything's changing so quickly in the sustainability space. But it sounds like that's especially important for a policy role, if not kind of the core function of the policy role is to keep up with that information and to distill all that information into something useful. Yeah, absolutely. And what's beautiful about renewable energy and energy in general is that we're at a really exciting time where a lot of things, excuse me, are changing fast and there's a ton of new technology. So I mentioned wind and solar. Um, these are proven technologies that have been around for decades, but the technology is always improving. It's becoming cheaper. It's becoming more effective. So that's exciting. But there's also new things like storage. Um, so there's all different types of storage that are that are coming to the front. Um, you know, there's lithium ion ion battery storage, which is now the topic du jour and the most popular type of storage. But there's new technologies that are being uh, experimented with. Um, hydrogen. Hydrogen is, is the, a brand new topic. Everyone's kind of scrambling around to try and figure out what exactly it means, whether it's the future, um, whether it's achievable. Um, a lot of experts believe that it's Clean hydrogen is the only way to decarbonize really hard to decarbonize sectors, particularly in the industrial space, processes like steel making and cement making and glass making and, and long distance trucking and, and things like that. Um, like nuclear, which I don't really get involved with, but there are advances in small modular reactors. There's... Um, uh, fusion, which is, uh, I think, not quite there yet, but everyone always says it's right around the corner. Um, and, you know, I said that wind was proven, but offshore wind. So all the wind in the U.S., with the exception of a very small pilot project off of Rhode Island and, oh, actually Virginia, too, um, all the wind is onshore. But we're very quickly moving towards a place where a lot of our wind is going to be, be generated offshore. Europe's really far ahead of us, uh, particularly in the North Sea. Um, you know, the UK just gets us an amazing amount of their electricity from offshore wind. And we're probably five to 10, maybe even further behind them. But there's a lot of excitement about these new wind turbines that are going to be placed off the, you know, the East Coast, California, in the Gulf of Mexico. And, and these machines are as tall as the Chrysler building. I mean, they're absolutely massive. Um, and the, so that's all to say that there's all these new technologies that are coming to the forefront. There's constant development. So it's, it's very exciting that you get to, to learn about new things as you work to implement the things that there already are. So constantly learning um, and constantly just being aware of emerging trends. Absolutely. Yeah, that's extremely exciting to think about um, not only what you could implement now, but then what's coming down the pipeline and how you could build on that with future advances. Exactly. Exactly. So once you have all this information and you, um, and you're gathering trends and things like that, what do you do with it? Well, do you, a, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. Do you, when you, once you gather all this information, do you, uh, are you mostly kind of writing reports and to brief uh, other individuals or are you presenting to Congress or, yeah, that's a great question. So I don't write too many reports. I have some really smart people 
uh, at Acor, or not I, there are some very smart people at Acor that, that do that kind of thing. And we have a lot of partners and consultants that author a lot of reports um, on this type of stuff. Um, I, I haven't mentioned, you know, that a lot of folks at Acor are very involved in sustainable finance. So, so investment in renewable energy. We we represent a lot of the the financial tax equity providers um, that fund these projects. Um, the ESG discussion is huge right now, too. Oh God, don't even get me started. In fact, I'm not. I'm totally not equipped to to speak on ESG. Just that it's totally uh, has burst onto the scene as mm-hmm. a very controversial topic. Now that the Republicans have taken control of the House, um, they've made it a priority um, to, to pass legislation against ESG investing. And you're seeing that kind of mirrored on the state level where you're seeing a lot of red states um, think about and, and start to pass laws that prevent, you know, the state pension funds or, or state investments um, from being made with firms that engage in ESG investing. Um, mm-hmm. I'm sure you, you're aware that uh, Texas has has uh, boycotted uh, BlackRock, which is because they say it's woke capitalism or whatever that is. But so I'm not an expert on that, but we are tracking those those discussions generally. Um, and I'm sorry, I forgot what. Oh, yes. So, yeah, you talked about reports. In my position, I'm more of presenting the findings of those reports as evidence to policymakers and saying, you know, here's evidence of why this proposed policy is a good idea. So one of the things I haven't mentioned, you know, I, I've already spoken a lot about transmission and how it's it's necessary to transport renewables to population centers. But one thing I haven't mentioned is it's also incredibly important for energy security and the resiliency of our power system. So as we know, extreme weather events are increasing in frequency and duration and intensity. And this can become a huge problem because we've seen recent examples of cold snaps and heat waves shutting down power generation. And this had really tragic effects, uh, for example, in February of 2021 in Texas, winter storm Yuri. The grid went down um, for, uh, you know, three, four, five days. And tragically, you know, the official reports are that 200 people passed away, I think probably more. Um, And that's because uh, once the generation went down in Texas, um, they weren't able to import any more juice. So Texas <laughs> is is kind of islanded from the rest of the grid. There's very few interconnections between ERCOT, which is the grid operator in Texas, and the rest of the country. And that's by design. That's a political decision. They don't want to come under jurisdiction of our friends at FERC. Um, and so when the generation inside Texas went down, they couldn't import any more resources from anywhere else in the country. So the same cold snap was over the Great Plains states, so MISO and SPP, those are two other grid operators, but they were able to keep the lights on because they were able to import electricity from the East Coast. So we saw this again with Winter Storm Elliot, which happened over Christmas, just this past December. 
And we saw the same sort of thing where we saw generation outages in uh, the Carolinas, where generation went down and they didn't have enough links um, to connect um, and they weren't able to import any more electricity. So that's a resilience issue. And the reason I brought it up is one of the things that ACOR has done a really good job is putting together some reports quantifying the value that additional transmission would have provided during those extreme weather events. And this is something that I think ACOR is really good at, at presenting sort of the thought leadership and the, and the evidence to back up some of our policy priorities. And we put out one report maybe a year ago that said, you know, each gigawatt of transmission capacity, had it existed connecting to Texas, would have saved people, you know, ratepayers a billion dollars and kept the lights on for an additional 200,000 homes. We just put out a new report um, looking at Winter Storm Elliott, and it found that, you know, if we had had a transmission line, say, between Texas and the Carolinas, it would have saved ratepayers, you know, $100 million. So this is an example of us, you know, presenting evidence and data that we can then use to advocate on the Hill and say, we need this bill for more transmission and here's why and, and present a dollar figure to policymakers. And, and that's really an effective advocacy strategy, having the data and evidence to back that up. That's so interesting because within a company, if we're talking about a sustainability department or a director of sustainability, another one of the things that has come up is, you know, always making that business case for mm -hmm. sustainability improvements and um, really having the facts and figures to back up the arguments you make is so important for actually driving change. And it's exactly what you've just described, just at a more macro level. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you really, um, so your role is to present those findings to policymakers. Do, you, do they request meetings with you or does ACOR place you in front of them? Uh, it's a little bit of both. Um, so if we're going after a particular policy, we'll request some meetings. We'll identify, you know, I mentioned the committees of jurisdiction. So we'll talk to some personal offices and by personal offices, I mean, main offices of members that belong to that committee have staffers each with a portfolio of different topics. So we'll go in and talk to their, their energy staffers. You know, the committees say the energy and commerce committee in the house also has professional staff that are dedicated to that committee. And so we'll go and talk to them as well. Um, and so we will sort of fine tune our advocacy outreach and strategy based on what we're trying to accomplish. But then at the same time, We've developed relationships over time where congressional staff will come to us to ask our opinions on things, ask for feedback, ask us to offer thoughts on a particular piece of legislation. And that's really where the, the juice is, right? You got to have those ongoing relationships with the staffers so you're not constantly, you know, requesting to talk to them and presenting your things. If you, you know... Uh, if you demonstrate that you're trustworthy and you're knowledgeable and you know what you're talking about, they will very often come to you and it becomes a two-way relationship. And that's really where the rubber hits the road. So it sounds like another key skill here is kind of the ability to network and develop those relationships with legislators. Yeah. And, and, and their staff and people always overlook staff, but you know, the members of Congress are, are so busy and there's so many topics that they all need dedicated staff that can develop 
the expertise and specialization in a particular area, whether that's energy, transportation, health, anything like that. And so really getting to know the staff on a personal level and, and, and showing them that you know what you're talking about and, and they can trust you, um, that's really important. That, yeah, that networking component is absolutely essential. So is your, is your objective for the role really to become a subject matter expert on renewable energy policy and then share that information with policymakers so that they can make better decisions? That's a really great way to put it. Yeah, subject matter expert. Um, couldn't have put it better myself. Well, that's really interesting. And I know you enjoy getting to spend that time reading and learning about new things and um, always trying to push new yeah. technology. And I love the advocacy. I mean, I, I love I love talking to people. I love meeting new people. You know, I was just up on the hill today for a meeting. Um, you know, ever since COVID hit, um, I go to the the hill physically a lot less than I used to. So it's always exciting to get back into it. I think meetings in person are a lot more effectual. But just you know, walking around the house office buildings, the Senate office buildings, I still get a rush from it. I think it's really exciting and. It's, it's just a major perk of the job. That must be an incredible environment to be a part of. Yeah, yeah, it's great. I love it. So with just a few minutes left we have here, um, I want to talk about any specific education or certification requirements that are re required for something like this. I can't imagine there are too many, but uh, you did say you went to grad school. Is that something that is um, considered necessary to get into a role in policy or was that icing on the cake? Uh, I don't think it's required, um, but it's definitely a plus. Um, you know, I did things a little unusually, I think, where I did undergrad and then I went straight through grad school. I did it all right in a row. And, and could you remind us what you studied in grad school again and where? Yeah, absolutely. So I went to the University of Maryland, as did you. Um, and I studied political science in undergrad and I studied um, public policy with a special specialization in energy and environmental policy in grad school. And that was at University of Maryland School of Public Policy. And I went straight through. I, they actually had a nifty program. I think they still have it. It was a five year BA MPP program. So I could just knock it all out at once and, and have two degrees after five years. And that was Fair incredible point. for a variety of reasons. Um, a lot of people don't have that opportunity. Uh, I wouldn't, I would recommend it if that type of program exists, but generally when people come to me for advice, I say, don't go straight into grad school. Um, you know, finish up school, get out there, have a job or two, really learn what you want to do or focus on, and then think about grad school. You know, undergrad, very general Grad school is a lot more focused and specific. So you want to be sure that you're really interested and motivated and excited about a topic before you pursue a, a, you know, a higher degree in something. Um, I don't, like I said, I don't think a grad degree is required to get involved in policy, but at least in DC and in the spaces I run, it's kind of anticipated that you will eventually get a graduate degree, a master's, an MPP, or a, another sort of grad degree at some point. Um, and it, it really gives you the upper hand when you're 
applying for for a new job it it sort of sets you apart from the other candidates but i don't think it's a barrier it's it's probably a plus um to get to your question i i don't have any other certifications um so i can't speak to that but i will say just very generally you know data analysis data visualization um these are things that can probably also set you apart from a a pool of candidates. Um, I have no no expertise in that matter, but people are always looking for people that not only know what they're talking about, but can present it in a very compelling way. Definitely. Well, that's where the team aspect comes in, right? There's, yes. I'm sure you have people on your team who do the who crunch the numbers, and then people like yourself who are the networkers and presenting that information to the right people. Absolutely. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, you had described earlier how um, getting into the workforce and learning that legislative process, regardless of what you're working on, is a key first step. So maybe doing that after college and figuring out what you want to niche down, niche down into and what subject matter expert you want to become, then grad school might be a good option then. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, I'll say it again. I realize most of your listeners are probably not in the DC area, so can't just drop everything and go intern on the Hill. But, you know, every state has a state legislature, so you can get similar experience. You know, most state legislatures are, are pretty similarly modeled on the US Congress, so those are replicable skills. Um, you know, also a lot of companies like energy companies or any other companies will have government affairs departments. And so you can, you know, get an internship or a position there and you can learn the legislative process from the other side, but that's also useful and you can develop skills that way. And, you know, as I said, a campaign is not quite the same, but, you know, there's candidates running for positions everywhere and that's kind of an introduction to the legislative process as well. Those are some great tips. Yeah, especially if you're not living in the D.C. area, some ways that you can get involved in the legislative process and the ways that you can um, learn the skills needed to take that next step. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's awesome. Well, the world that you've shared with us, Danny, is one that is that not many people have access to or really understand. So it's been really interesting, and I'm sure a lot of people are going to get a lot of value from it. Yeah, absolutely. My pleasure. It's been great talking to you today. Thanks for jumping on. Of course. Thanks for having me.